Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Oh, well, good morning. It's, it's awesome to see you guys. You know, last week we left off with how Jesus was tested in the wilderness to really to know his identity as a son who is well-loved by his father and showing us what basic discipleship one-on-one looks like and to really know who we are in God's eyes. That's foundational in how we fight evil in this world. So right after Jesus was tested, we see in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Jesus saying that the first words of his public ministry. So what do you think those first words were? And if you were living while Jesus was on the earth and you were part of the crowds that heard him speak, um, what do you think the main thing that Jesus consistently talked about? Any ideas? What do we got? How many of you would say, oh, probably the golden rule, like do unto other people, do unto others as you would have them do it to you, or that we're supposed to love our enemies? Now, those are all really good truths that Jesus shared, but they are only a small part of a larger message that Jesus, t- Jesus talked about. The answer to both Jesus' first words and what he talked about the most, uh, we see in Matthew 4. Um, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, but Mark has almost the exact same words for Jesus' first words, and he uses the term kingdom of God instead. Now, both can be used interchangeably in the New Testament because they mean the exact same thing. So Jesus' first words give us this pivotal perspective in understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, many of us have heard or used this phrase, the kingdom of God, but do we really know what it means? Um, some of us may have thought that Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of heaven or God meant, being near meant that, well, we get to go to heaven after we die. Or, and how we spend eternity is definitely part of the good news of the kingdom of God. But it's not the fullness of what J- Jesus is primarily meaning. In Jesus, um, God was beginning to reign on earth in a new way. Fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, which had, has a dramatic, crucial impact on our eternity, but it has also an impact on everything that is pertaining to this life in this world today. So what all the crowds would have heard from this young prophet Jesus, who was making his tour of all the towns, was an explosive message about the kingdom. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I gloss over it, because I don't really fully understand what Jesus means when, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. But we have to understand it. And in order to put it maybe in a little bit perspective, Jesus uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven, in Matthew alone, 50 times in just 30 pages. The word kingdom is used 150 times in the New Testament. So let's look again at Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at hand means God's kingdom is imminent. It is present It's not something up in the upper atmosphere. It is real and it is present here. It is breaking into our reality. And we see this kingdom demonstrated in the huge crowds that followed Jesus, right? People with great emotional, physical, and spiritual needs, they were healed and transformed by encountering him. The central message of all of Jesus' teachings and actions were meant to point to the kingdom of God being near. So when we think of Jesus, we should think kingdom. Every parable of Jesus is an illustration of the kingdom of God. When Jesus tells us to love our enemy, it's it's not just this moral teaching. It is the only sensible response of an outworking of the reality that the kingdom of God is here for us. 
And it's what we do in response to his kingdom, his reign coming to us. So today, we just want to explore what this kingdom means, how it affects us today. And I don't know about you, but the term kingdom, it often conjures up these images of medieval knights, fair maidens and castles, or, or I think of current royalty, which seems more a little bit more symbolic than having any real power, right? So using the word kingdom can also lead us to think of it being like this faraway thing, a faraway kingdom, instead of a here and now realm that we can really engage with. Because the whole idea of the kingdom for many of us is sort of strange. So I want to go back to the first time that the Bible references the ruling or reigning. Now, you remember in Genesis 1 where God created male and female in his own image. And God blessed them and said, go, enjoy, be fruitful, fill this earth, you know, like subdue it, harness the energy, the potential of this earth by ruling over it. God created humans to rule, to manage, to oversee this world. I mean, it's like God installed them as little kings and queens to represent God in overseeing all of creation. And that's how the Bible begins. It's this story about the kingdom of God. And it lets us know who's really running this show, who's in charge. But what do we see in Genesis 3? We see humans rebel. They don't trust God's motives, not trusting God's definition of what is good and what's evil. So things go really, really bad, right? Their choices lead to an alternate kingdom. Now, Jesus calls this alternate kingdom this age. Paul calls it the age of sin and death. And it's the Bible's explanation of how humans rejected God's kingdom, his rule, and made it their own kingdom. So in response, God begins to form yet another group to be his people, whom he's going to rescue, bring freedom, and be their king as a way to provide salvation to the whole world. So who is this? This is Israel, right? God chose Abraham and his descendants to be this people group through which God could bring salvation to them and the whole world. And so, and yet again, what is this? This group fails too. You know, the Israelites, they become enslaved in Egypt and with a murderous Pharaoh working the people to death. God intervenes again. He shows his justice. He frees the Israelites. He opens the Red Sea for them to walk through. And when the Pharaoh chases after them to bring them back, God closes the water and crushes them. And this is where the Bible first describes God as a king. In Exodus 15, the people sing the song of liberation. You remember that song? You know, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, you know, yeah, great, thrown into the sea, right? So the last phrase of that song that they sing uses king and kingdom language when it says the Lord will reign forever and ever. God will reign forever as king. So our one big story that we've been doing this year is all about a king who desires to have people live under his reign, his rule, his protection. Yet people want to make their own kingdoms, right? And which always leads to something bad. You know, so we see God puts some boundaries up for the Israelites. He says these boundaries, these commandments and laws, they're given to help the Israelites know how to live with fullness, joy, and purpose and peace. But they don't follow those instructions. And we see, and we have seen over and over again throughout the one big story how Israel messed it all up and how they ran the nation into the ground because they didn't submit to the reign of the very God who created them and rescued them out of Egypt. So despite their failure, God spoke through the prophets that one day a rescuer, a Messiah would come and God would take back this world and be their king and this king would be perfect and he would bring salvation for all. 
you know, we see this kingdom language in the Gospels too. In the Old Testament prophets, they prophesied God's reign would come through a Messiah. What did, what did Isaiah say? A child would be born, a son would be given. Now the term Messiah, it refu- refers to a Jewish king. Just like if we would say the Pharaoh was an Egyptian kind of king. The word Messiah in Greek is also Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. You know, the, so the given, the title is given to Jesus because it means that Christ is, he's the king. So when Peter declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he was saying, Jesus, you are king. Anyone who said Jesus was the Messiah, they were boldly claiming that Jesus is king. We see in all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and over again, Jesus um, being described as king, how he ushered in God's kingdom especially when they were talking about Jesus' last days. When Jesus was mocked by soldiers who twisted that crown of thorns on their head, what did they say? Hail, King of the Jews. When Pilate, um, he asked Jesus, Are you King of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered and said, You have said so. As Jesus was dying on the cross, the soldiers mocked him yet again. If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. Now the resurrection of Jesus from the dead brings God's kingdom full force onto earth, vindicating that Jesus is truly the king of every king. And the gospel writers could not be more clear. Jesus is the Messiah, the king of all humanity. Now, I think it's interesting to note that the use of those words in the gospel for the early church were very dangerous, even treasonous. The reason is because the term Messiah or Christ was only to be used for like Roman Caesars. They were the only ones to to be declared Christ or king. So for any of the early church converts, when they say Jesus is my Christ, it could have been identified as treason, leading them to imprisonment or death. So that kingdom language showed kingdom commitment. When we say the kingdom of God is here and that Jesus is our king, do we have that same kind of commitment that they were risking? The kingdom of God was not just the heart of Jesus' agenda. It was his agenda. God was answering the question like, who is in charge here? And Jesus boldly declared, I am the king of this kingdom. Now, over the years, the phrase kingdom of God, I think it's gotten a little bit muddled, you know. As mentioned before, um, for some it means like Jesus came to die for our sins so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven when we die. And those who emphasize this truth, they believe that everything else in our Christian life is secondary to the primary goal of going to heaven. Now, our eternal salvation is absolutely critical. Um, But yet this way of thinking reduces, I think, the fullness of what Jesus means when he says the kingdom is at hand. Knowing that we're going to be with God after death is an incredible benefit of the kingdom. But it's not the fullness that Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God is near. So in contrast, there's some others that focus less on eternity, part of the, the kingdom, and they take the kingdom of God to mean something different. About 100 years ago, many churches in America, they withdrew from the public arena. They let the government take over more of the caring for the poor and for the most vulnerable. And those are our issues related to social justice, right? We've seen that many churches say that this is not okay, and they are being diligent to bring back this calling of helping the poor and the sick because the church has an incredibly long and beautiful history of giving to the poor, helping with education, and creating and sustaining hospitals. Now, now some call this kingdom work the social gospel, yet this too misses the bigger picture of what the kingdom of God means because it just focuses more of the attention on that social justice piece. The church needs to embrace a bigger idea of what the kingdom of God means. Why? 
Because the kingdom of God is not something for the future, our eternity. It's not just for that. It's not just to help with the practical needs that we have in our world. The kingdom of God means that God is here in the present, bringing his reign and his rule over this world. And we enter his kingdom when we choose to follow him. So, I know, sort of a side note on this is many of us may be okay in in saying, like, well, God, yes, I believe he is king. When things are going really well, like everybody's healthy and happy and our jobs are doing well. But when we experience something that's not as beautiful, not as happy, something more tragic, such as the things that we see and hear on the news every day, right? We can wonder about God. Is he really king? We may intellectually affirm that God is king, but not believe that he's really in control on earth right now because things seem so out of control. And the incongruence is how we believe, and how we believe is very important for us to grapple with. All throughout the Bible, people have struggled with this tension. Um, we live um, in times where we have these incredible moments of joy, and then we can walk through grief and tragedy. The Psalms pour it out, like, how long, O Lord, are these like evildoers going to crush your people or murder the fatherless, etc., etc., right? Things happen in this world that seem to not, re- that don't reflect what the world should look like if Jesus was king. So it leads us to doubt whether God's power, whether he really is that powerful or is he really that good. You know, has he fallen asleep or does he just not really care? Because if Jesus was king, how can this kind of horror be happening in in our world? So in order to address those doubts, you know, we return to Genesis because that's where everything was perfect, right? And you remember how the story went off the tracks. And then God puts it right back onto those tracks with Jesus declaring, repent, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. And repent is like Jesus saying, hey, pay attention. This is something you need to make a decision about. You've got to turn around. He's declaring to the people, and he's declaring that to us now too. So how do you respond to Jesus uh, letting you know that the kingdom of God is near you? You know, we see some of the fishermen's response to this declaration. So right after Jesus made that perfect, um, that declaration, he goes to a lake and he sees some fishing. And he calls out to them and he says what? Hey, follow me. And their response is, they immediately left their nets and followed him. They left their nets, their business. Two of them even left their dad to follow Jesus. Why? I mean, they didn't need a job change. I mean, the fisher- fishing was their family business. But they left it all to follow Jesus and his claim that the kingdom has arrived. It is here and it is present. And they were the first of this new group that God was forming for his kingdom. So what does the kingdom um, that Jesus is declaring look like? You know, we see in those following chapters in Matthew, we see it more clearly. You know, Jesus looks past outward appearances. I love it when he reads people's mail. You know, he gives these gut punching teachings and people flock to him they have encounters with him where they're transformed they're healed and made whole prostitutes are forgiven social outcasts are healed and they are brought back into community people that no one thought could ever be restored or have their sins forgiven are completely changed the kingdom is how god put humanity back on the tracks again and the kingdom of god is where god rules and where he is in charge So when Jesus was accused, you remember by the Pharisees, um, when he was using, they said he was using powers of evil to cast out the demons. Jesus' response was, um, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
I mean, this shows us that the kingdom of God shoves out darkness. So now back to that grappling with that question, if God is king, why do bad things happen? You know, we've talked about it before. It's part of our, on the theology of the kingdom of the now and the not yet. And we're not going to take time to unpack that. Um, but the main gist of that theology is a struggle between the two kingdoms of, of God and the age of this, of this age of sin and death. And Jesus is ushering in his kingdom on earth. And, and it is going to come to all of its fullness in the future when Christ returns. So we live in this tension of God. God's kingdom is here, but it's also in the future. Um, and, but we have to believe that God's kingdom, it can invade our lives at any moment. That God still does miracles today. And yet, yet recognize that the results of this are not always going to be perfect until the side of heaven. And um, we can, we'll talk about that more about another time. But the point I want in this message on the kingdom of God is just our tendency to push back um, on, the, on the now part. We have a tendency to land more on, the, I think, the not yet, or at least maybe I do. Um, because I think we can become complacent in believing that God um, has so much that he wants to bring into our present world. But when we go back to the Gospels, when we see Jesus and we look at him, he focuses more on the kingdom coming into our midst now and not on the not yet. And we have to live with that tension to be fully engaged more in what God is wanting to do in this present and to not become disillusioned when things don't happen in the way that we hoped. And I think that God is really asking us to be more awakened to what his kingdom means in the now to focus more on what God is doing and what he wants to do than what is not happening. I mean, we see that all the time, right, what is not happening well. And I believe that God is at work in our world today. You know, I believe that this turmoil uh, that we're in, um, it reflects that we are at a precipice where God is wanting to bring even more of of his kingdom into our world today. And I want all of us to be a part of it. But in order to be a part of that, what do we see Jesus doing He is asking the people to lay down their own kingdoms and to begin to live under his reign. So what does that look like for our in our lives? That's what we're going to be exploring in the next couple weeks to just give you a heads up. Um, And we need to prepare ourselves because what Jesus says and what he does, it's going to tick us off, at least in one area. Why? Um, Because the gospel, the kingdom goes to the root issue of what is wrong with each and every one of us. The gospel is amazing news. But to get on track with that good news, it can and often will offend us. Because right here we're going to see Jesus, we're going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus addresses bringing justice for the poor, which is a topic that excites some and then ticks other people off. He talks about sexual integrity and purity. He talks about what we do with money. And so for some of us, God is going to be asking us to make some big life changes. And for others, it might be some smaller tweaks. We are all going to be asked to have more clear awareness of why we do what we do when we choose to enter the kingdom of God. So the main point today is, what does it mean to live under the reign of King Jesus? How does a kingdom of God look like in your everyday life? So I just want to highlight a few, three, th- a few points. First, the kingdom is very powerful and personal. When the kingdom of God takes over, it's, it's not like we become these mindless zombies, right? We actually become more alive than we could have ever before. And we are freed from the darkness that is inside. And that's personal and that's powerful. Second point is that the kingdom is also about relationships. Because when we choose to walk together in this kingdom, it affects 
all of those around us. It affects our families and our friendships and our community because we're a people who are being divinely taken over by this king. We live differently individually and corporately because of who Jesus is. So for me, when I've been thinking over this last week how God is king, for me it was reminding me again how evil is not in control of our world. And I have needed a boost of that truth. The devil is not setting the agenda, nor is he calling all the shots in this world, but although he would like us to think that he is, right? Because But Jesus made it abundantly clear that he is the ruler, and it is his kingdom that we belong to if we have chosen to follow him. Jesus never, ever lived in reaction to the devil, and neither should we. And I love that about him. Jesus focused on what his father was doing, and that's, what he, that's where he put his attention. And the third point is that living in the kingdom is knowing more and more how to abide or rest in the truth that God is in control. I mean, you hear quotes, like when I read personal growth help books, you know, whatever, they'll say things like, whatever you focus your attention and energy on becomes your reality, right? And there's truth in that for sure. And it's nothing new. Proverbs tells us that. For as he thinks within himself, so is he. So what we think on, what we are most aware of, we're going to see more of, right? So if we look at what the enemy wants us to with all the violence and the division, we're going to get more despair and we're going to get more hopelessness, which is exactly where the enemy would like for us to live, right? So the question for all of us is, what do I focus most of my attention on? And this question uh, reminds me of a quote. There uh, was a great 19th century preacher named Charles Spurgeon, and he said, too many people write their blessings in the sand, but their sorrows in marble. And I've been thinking about that, like, am I one of those people that writes God's goodness in something that can be so easily erased? Or, and do I etch in stone the problems that I see? Where is my focus? I want to become more aware of the kingdom of God, what he is doing right now in running this show. Um, this week, one of my closest friends shared how she was feeling like the Holy Spirit was asking her to look at how she thought about 2020. And her mind went to some of the funny memes that were wishing like 2020 was over. Um, so I had to look some of them up. You know, here we have a few of them. Um, yeah, I like that one. Um, yeah, Grumpy Cat. Yeah. Well, always have to throw a Lord of the Rings in there at some point. But yeah, and this one, I don't know if you can see it really well, but he's like passed out, you know, just is this ever going to get over, right? And I agree with many of the feelings of those um, of those memes, you know. But my friend's challenge was to think about some of the promises and hopes that you felt like God had given you for this year, maybe individually, maybe for your family, maybe for our world, and it was to not give up on them. You know, I know for, for me, this last year had me turn 55. Um, I moved into a new home with an address of 5,500. My mom lives on 55th Avenue way. Oh, I should maybe. Anyway, my son's jersey is 55. I sensed that God was saying something to me about this year through that number. And some of you may think me a little bit Lulu on that. Um, but God's used numbers before for me to help me focus on, like, something that he's wanting to do. And in the Bible, the five often re- represents grace and redemption. And 2019 was a difficult year. And um, so I had sensed that God was saying with 55 that he was going to trust, that I could trust him, that he was going to double the portion of grace and redemption that was coming in my life. And I am so much better this almost year into that than I was before. Um, 
and I am experiencing grace and redemption, but I still want more. And when I was talking to my friend, I had realized how my heart had become more lethargic or despondent in, in, this, in these areas of, of like really believing that God has some kingdom living to be done. And we've got some more time this year, right? So I, I would encourage us to let's see how we can participate in what God is wanting to do rather than what we want to escape or just try to endure. So I encourage you to dust off some of the hopes or dreams that you had for 2020. Um, so despite the pain, the tragedy of this year, God is still in charge, right? He has some good stuff that he wants to do. And where do you want to focus your, your thoughts on? Jesus said what? The kingdom of God is here. It's invading our world. God is running the show and he is in charge. This belief that God is king, I mean, it leads us to pray. Right in the middle of this, two chapters after Jesus ushered in this kingdom of God and where he's describing what the kingdom looks like, he instructs his disciples on how to pray. And it's a prayer that many of us pray every day. What does Jesus say? Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean, on earth as it is in heaven? Because what's in heaven? Torment? Poverty? Sickness and evil? Well, absolutely not. Jesus tells us what the kingdom looks like in John when he says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So we pray life and life to the full. Where there is torment that we see, we pray for peace to drive out torment. Where there is poverty, we pray for provision and abundance. Where there is sickness, we pray for health and wholeness. And I was thinking of some ways that I saw the kingdom this past week. And one of them was that a mom uh, was, was three days into the school year, and she was crying, feeling like she was over her head, and she was failing, right? She reached out to some other moms for support, and she shared how she was needed absolutely needed a relationship with jesus and i love how she described that relationship with god that she needed she says i don't need i need not just the cheers i'm going to heaven kind of relationship but i need the kind of relationship where jesus is involved in the everyday grit of my life because i need him that much and he loves me that much the kingdom looks like being present with jesus in your tears in the i don't know what to do and when is this going to be over The kingdom looks like God showing us what he's really made of. Another example of the kingdom in our midst is Daniel Johnson. He's the two-year-old little boy that was diagnosed with cancer in July that we've been praying for. His results have been so good in the last two weeks. The doctor was excited saying that Daniel had one of the all-time highest counts for measuring stem cells that they can for their harvesting. And the results of his latest scans show excellent news with the tumor in his abdomen being much less and the tumor in his chest being almost gone. I'm, it is awesome, yes. Now that little guy, they're such a fighter. So there are miracles happening. So keep praying for Daniel, Rebecca, Eric, the whole family, Caleb, praying for them. Another example of the kingdom we saw is um, someone who is loving and caring for their parent who is in their last days on this earth. They are hanging in there. They are being there 24-7, staying connected to Jesus and to their loved one. Oh, gosh, they are looking for beauty in the midst of such grief. And I, that is kingdom. Because we're a community that is trying to figure out what it really means to, fig- to really follow Jesus, I want us to close with thinking about a few of these questions. If you were 
intentionally living under God's reign, being aware of his reign, how might this make a difference? What might you do that you would not have done otherwise? What would it look like for you to recognize that you are entering God's reign, his rule at your work, at your school, or in your family, in the grocery store? And how would that make you think and feel differently? I'm going to be, you know, thinking about some of those questions this next week. You know, I want to end with prayer, and then we're going to show a a quick video. Around 2 a.m. on Saturday morning, I awoke, which is not an uncommon thing. I, I wake up a lot, and I usually listen to podcasts. And I like to listen to people that have, like, these mellow, baritone voices because I easily fall asleep to them, which is I should just listen to Ross's messages because I go, right, okay. Anyway, but instead, I was drawn because I just absolutely love this um, video clip of Dr. Lockridge. Uh, he's from the 1970s. He's 70s. It's a classic one where he talks about who is my king. Um, many of you probably have heard it. And it's definitely not the thing that you want to listen to when you're trying to fall asleep. But I love the bold declarations of who Jesus is as he's the one in charge and he ushers in the kingdom of God. So let's pray. Well, God, we just want to thank you so much that you are our king and we are not left here to just try to figure this all on our own. We thank you that you are present here and now in everything that we're going through. So, Lord, we ask that by your spirit you would help us to become more aware of what you're doing in our midst. We pray that you would put within us a a boldness and and just a strengthening confidence that you are king. So we bless the work of your spirit within us, within our community, within our country. We pray for more of your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. We bless your precious, precious name. Amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.